I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that you will turn in them to the passage Katie just read for us, Matthew chapter 12. If you're not there already, anticipating that's where we would be. And if you need help with finding it in one of the Bibles that are provided for you in the backs of the chairs, you'll find this passage (coughs) on page 817, 817. Well, it's Mother's Day, and so uh, naturally the passage that the Lord had for us on Mother's Day is the passage about the unpardonable sin. But seriously, even though that doesn't seem to be necessarily very topical on Mother's Day, it is next in our series, and in case you didn't know this, we believe that a systematic verse-by-verse approach to the scriptures is the most ideal and most natural God-honoring way for us to listen to him speak to us through his word. So even though perhaps now would be a good day to, or, or a nice time to think about passages about honoring our parents, and that is certainly true, and I hope all the children We'll seek to do that in a special way today. We're just going to keep pressing on in God's word and let it say what it says. And so I'm not going to connect this passage to Mother's Day by suggesting that the unpardonable sin is not calling your mom on Mother's Day or something like that. But, but we will hear a sobering warning from Scripture, and perhaps a sobering warning from Scripture will remind us about the commands of God being taken seriously, including honor your father and your mother. So kids, this is what I'm going to say about it right now. Honor your mom today. And I know a lot of them are downstairs, but some of them are still up here. And for those of us adults who who ought to, call your mom if you can. Well, it's important to remember that the account of this event, of the text that Katie just read for us, um, that took place during Jesus's earthly ministry, is part of a larger effort on Matthew's part to make plain to his readers that Jesus, born to Joseph and Mary, raised in Nazareth, is the Christ, is the Messiah, is God's chosen and anointed one to bring salvation to his people. The first 21 verses of chapter 12 describe for us a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees regarding what was and what was not lawful. And as always, Jesus' brilliance and beauty shown through that situation, and he moved on then to what was next on his agenda. And so the previous passage, the text previous to our text today, started with this description that Jesus was doing what he had done many times before, which was healing all of the people who came to him in need. And so then Matthew connected the dots for his readers that Jesus' ministry activity, both in the gentle manner in which he cared for the needy and in the truthful way in which he corrected the Pharisees display that he was indeed the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that promised that he would come. But despite the mounting evidence that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Pharisees would not be convinced. Their skepticism, their criticism, and the overall self-righteousness of the Pharisees is a prevailing theme in Matthew's Gospel and in the other synoptics as well, but it is perhaps nowhere more clear than in today's text. I'm just going to read verses 22 through 24 again for now. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Well, the situation here is that Jesus is healing again, as he often did. And in this case, it is a terribly disabled, and the Bible tells us, demon-oppressed man that is brought to him for healing. And Jesus graciously, it ought to be no surprise to us by now, heals him. But there are a few noteworthy things to observe about this situation. First of all is that Jesus was just described as having healed many people. And so, in a sense, this is just another healing. But if this is just another healing, then why did Matthew point it out? Because he just basically just covered the fact that Jesus is gracious and powerful and gentle and 
is healing all these people. So why would Matthew record this one? The second thing that you would note and perhaps either ask or observe is that the people connect this healing of Jesus to the possibility of Jesus being, they say in verse 23, the son of David. And so another question you might ask is why use that title? Why not reference another title of Jesus? There's some really interesting stuff behind this title. Can't get into all of it right now, but at its essence is Christ's messiahship. Matthew is actually the gospel writer who uses the phrase, the son of David, the most. He even starts his gospel with the lineage of Jesus being tied to being the son of David. And then when the people here in this passage make the connection, it makes sense then that Matthew would want to point that one out. And it makes sense that if that Jesus uh, should be seen performing a miraculous healing like this, then leading to people saying, I wonder if this is the Messiah. But it's also noteworthy that it is a question in their mind. Can this be the son of David? And if you look into the Greek language and its grammar and construction, this is not a question posed with anticipation. It is a genuine, uncertain question. Can this be the son of David? As opposed to, can this be the son of David? The third thing I would note and either ask or observe here is the setup in these very first few verses of some motifs in this story or themes in this story. Three of them, sight, speech, and the supernatural. The man brought to Jesus can neither see nor speak due to evil supernatural influence. And then it takes good supernatural intervention from Jesus to heal him. But the willful blindness of the religious leaders prevents them from seeing Jesus for who he is and leads them to speak evil things that then condemn them. In the rest of this passage, you'll see 17 words pertaining to speech. The sight one is certainly a theme. It's a little less prevalent in terms of how many times it's referenced. And then there are 10 references to spiritual darkness or supernatural power, and there's even a reference to the whole trinity in this passage. And so this is a passage that's just packed with important and impactful information that starts right off the back bat with this healing account. And this passage, I, I believe, is broken into three parts. The first part is this account from Matthew regarding the slander of the faithless Pharisees. In verses 23 through 22 through 24, we see that the Pharisees are not impressed with this healing. At least they don't want anybody to think they are. And in fact, I think you could observe that perhaps they're a bit scared by what's happening because the people are at least questioning whether or not this could be the son of David. And even if there is some doubt in their minds, at least the possibility is there. But the Pharisees just want to slam the door on that possibility. It almost could be read as if the Pharisees were suddenly finding themselves scrambling for some retort because they didn't want the crowd to start thinking that this was the Messiah. Son of David was an impactful comment for the crowds to make. It wasn't something you just threw around. And so the Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 let's not be rash. <laughs> I couldn't think of a... Uh, this has absolutely nothing to do with this, but for some reason, that part in the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious song in Mary Poppins where the guy says something like, or the Mary Poppins says something like, but that's taking it a bit too far, don't you think? And the guy says, indubitably. For whatever reason, that's what came into my mind. They're thinking, whoa, this is taking it a bit too far, calling him the son of David. And so, and they're possibly panicked, grasping for some kind of alternative explanation. The Pharisees suggest that this miraculous healing of this disabled and demon-oppressed man is something more devilish than divine. That's what you see in verse 24. It's by the prince of demons that this man casts out this demon. Isn't it interesting that they don't accuse Jesus of being an illusionist. 
they can plainly see that there's no sleight of hand here. They are seeing a miraculous exorcism, a supernatural event. But they don't want Jesus to be the son of David because if he is the son of David, then they've been wronged. And remember, we talked about this recently, legalistic Pharisees would rather look right than even be right. And so this being a supernatural occurrence is the only logical explanation. But if it's supernatural, like they can plainly see, it's going to have to be something devilish if it's not divine. And so the Pharisees make the choice of slandering Jesus through accusing him of demonic activity. And friends, I don't think I have to tell you this is an insult of the highest order. And even in this time, this was no light accusation. Sorcery was treated as a capital offense and and punished accordingly. So you could say that in a sense they're even calling for Jesus' death here, attributing his miraculous work to Beelzebul, the prince of demons, a.k.a. Satan, the devil. And so what they were doing here was blasphemous. Why? Because their hearts were hardened toward him. Because they didn't like what Jesus had been doing. Because he wasn't what they wanted. The Messiah was supposed to come liberate them nationally, but instead... He's associating with the enemy when he heals a Roman centurion, when he cares for a Roman centurion. The Messiah is supposed to uphold the law of God, but here's this guy who claims to be the Messiah harvesting on Shabbat, healing on the Sabbath. The Messiah is supposed to condemn the wicked, but he's feasting with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, he had even claimed recently in these passages previous to being greater than the temple and greater than King David. And multiple times this guy had claimed to be the son of man. This one in Daniel who comes before the ancient of days and is given all authority and power. The Pharisees couldn't stand it. They couldn't deny that something supernatural had happened, that this guy had some supernatural power, but they refused to acknowledge that it was divine. And so the only other option they had was that it was devilish. Their hearts were hardened. Their prideful, self-righteous, hypocritical hearts didn't want to submit to Jesus as Lord. And it's not because the evidence didn't support it. It's that they refused to believe. They had just seen this supernatural event take place, and they refused to believe. I recently saw a video clip of an atheist telling a Christian that he, the atheist, needed some solid evidence in order to believe in Jesus. And essentially what the Christian responded with was the fact that that atheist didn't require that kind of evidence for many other weighty matters in life, such as conclusive proof that a marriage is going to last forever or that you're not going to get hit by a car while you're driving or that the roommate you, you line yourself up with is not going to kill you in your sleep. The atheist specifically said he wanted 2 plus 2 equals 4 type evidence before he would believe. And the Christian said, you can't get 2 plus 2 evidence that your roommate won't kill you or that a truck at an intersection isn't going to smash you, or that your spouse won't betray you. Then he went on to talk to him about the thousands of manuscripts and variances that support the antiquity and veracity of the Christian Bible and about how believing in Christ, because of all that he did and displayed and said, is reasonable, but that so many like this atheist to whom he was speaking would rather play around with excuses for unbelief when the evidence is there. And I think that's part of what's going on here with these Pharisees. There is evidence. There's plenty of it. And he is literally right in front of them. But they didn't want to believe. 
Friends, I hope none of us here today or watching online or listening later is playing games with why they've never put their trust in Jesus as the Christ. Teens, kids, adults, young and old, the evidence is right there in front of us. Jesus' words and works point undeniably to the fact that he is the chosen servant of God, the savior of all who will believe in him. And to choose otherwise is ultimately absurd. In fact, Jesus calls it out as being absurd. They're just playing games like the atheist. And here's what Jesus says in verses 25 through 32. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Here we have one of the most harrowing passages in all of Scripture. That's one of those passages that preachers who preach expositionally through books know are coming when they start an exposition of one of these Gospels. A thought comes, I really want to preach through Matthew, but uh, unpardonable sin is going to be in there. That's going to be a tough one. But you know, I don't think this one is as tough as in hard to understand what he's saying as it is tough as in hard to hear and kind of process. The second part of this event, this situation that Matthew's recording for us, are these words about the sin that cannot be forgiven. So how does, how does all this work? The people observe Jesus healed a man. They wonder if this could be the Messiah. The Pharisees retort with faithless slander. And then it says in verse 25 that Jesus knew their thoughts, which I love. He probably actually heard what they said because this was a public event and their comments were being made publicly. But even if it was sort of like a side comment, he knew their thoughts and heard what heard what they said. And rather, I think maybe what Matthew is is just telling us is that he could see and discern what was going on in their hearts at and what was at the core of their problem. So anyway, he knows their thoughts and he speaks. And there's four things that Jesus does with these words. First. He disproves their blasphemous accusations. This is why I say that he calls it out as basically being absurd. His logic here in these verses is impeccably sound. It's not really that mind-blowing. It's just obvious. What kind of sense would it make for the devil to empower deliverance from himself? It's kind of, I mean, the NBA playoffs are going on right now. It would be like one of these famous superstar NBA athletes suddenly purposefully scoring for the other team or changing uniforms and playing for them. It makes no sense. That guy wants to win the championship and not make the team lose. That's Jesus's point. He illustrates it by going from big to small in 25 and 26. He says, no kingdom, no city, even no family dwelling place will stand if division is corroding it from the inside out. And so why on earth would the devil, who doesn't want to lose, just like one of these NBA players, why would he fight against himself by empowering Jesus to undermine his mission, to undermine his goals and his plan? It would make no sense. Furthermore, Jesus says in verse 27, your sons, which could actually mean other Pharisees or just their own disciples, perform exorcisms as well you don't attribute that to the power of the devil so how come when i exercise a demon you're saying it's the power of the devil he continues on in verse 29 we'll come back to 28 in just a second here 
He gives us this little parabolic situation which Jesus uses to illustrate the logic of his point and the absurdity of their denial. He, he gives them this parable, and the strong man in this analogy is the devil. The house is the world, or the devil's kingdom. The goods are the people that Satan has captured and are under demonic oppression and possession. And the someone is Jesus. And so in this parabolic illustration, Jesus kicks down the door, ties up the strong man, Satan, and gets his people back. In other words, Jesus is saying that instead of utilizing Satan's power, he is doing it himself. He is tying up Satan, plundering his kingdom, rescuing sinners from his dominion, such as this poor demon oppressed man who was blind and mute in verse 22. You see, Jesus had not arrived to simply make some pithy and controversial statements, start his own new religion just for the fun of it. He came to kick down the devil's door and rescue captives. He came to free people enslaved by sin. And so with clear logic and concise argumentation, Jesus disproves their blasphemous accusation. And then he declares the arrival of the kingdom. That's what you see in verse 28. It's in the middle of this argument where he's disproving their slander, but it's worth noting this logical conclusion that flies in the face of the Pharisees' blasphemous slander is that Jesus was not using demonic powers, but rather he was displaying his supernatural divine power over the demonic, and that that must lead to the conclusion that the kingdom of heaven had come at his arrival. And a declaration about the kingdom was not, this wasn't the first time, and this wasn't a novel declaration, but it was another chance for him to cement it, and he is essentially saying, if I'm not casting out demons by the power of demons, and am rather as is the only logical conclusion, casting out demons through the Holy Spirit, then guess what that means? That means that the power of the triune God has broken through and that the kingdom of this world is being taken for the kingdom of God. Do you see the Trinity here? It's the Spirit of God the Father, who empowers Jesus to exercise demons. So that's the second thing Jesus does with his words. The third is that he demands total allegiance. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Not all of you are old enough to remember this, but believe it or not, I am when George W. Bush made a statement like this in relation to the United States war on terror shortly after 9-11. You remember this? When President Bush said in an address to the joint session of Congress just 11 days after 9-11, every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You remember that? It was a controversial statement then even with many people's passions high against terrorism. And he's not the only world leader to say something like this. Other world leaders have said similar things throughout human history, and in fact, you see it in the Bible and other places as well. But nowhere else, and from no one else, is it more totem, totally and ultimately stated than here by Jesus. He is effectively saying that he requires total full allegiance and that anything this is this is tough guys that anything less is enmity if you are not with me you are against me and if you're not gathering with me then you're scattering if you're not involved with what i am doing you are opposing what I am doing. If you are not all in, then you're out. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus, my friends. 
to use a baseball analogy, which I'm quite fond of, you're either safe or you're out. And obviously, the umpires get that wrong a lot. But what's true is you're either safe or out. Another analogy, you're either pregnant or you're not. You're not half pregnant. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. There is no room for neutrality when it comes to Jesus. His claims are undeniably exclusive to the point that Jesus is willing to say that any indifference or apathy is equal to opposition. And that is quite startling to our sensibilities in our time and culture. The age that we live in is not favorably disposed to claims such as this. Our culture wants to be as affirming and inclusive and pluralistic of every moral, political, and religious preference that exists. And to hear you're either with me or against me, you're either in or out, is therefore highly offensive. And of course, we all should be kind to everyone, no matter what their, their place is with, with these other various views. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus said, you're either with me or against me. And that means that everyone who isn't with him in our society is against him. And it means that you don't get to only embrace the things about Jesus that you like and that you want to embrace. And then set aside the things that you don't like very much and that you don't want to embrace. Because if you do that, Jesus says you're not all in. And according to him, that means you're out. Friends, one of the great dangers of an intellectual age and culture and society such as the one we live in today, from which come many blessings as well, is the ease with which we can all be swept away into neutrality towards Jesus. And a pluralistic embracing of and tolerance for false religions and humanistic individualism. And let me just say something briefly to parents. Perhaps this can be the Mother's Day tie-in, but it's... I mean, a little different, a little different than a mushy-gushy moms are awesome thing. Parents, while we do not want to raise little Pharisees whose views on religion and the law are merely ceremonial and ritualistic, we also must deliberately and consistently and intentionally and faithfully put effort into steering our children towards the authoritative claims of Jesus. And that's going to mean doing the hard work of faithful and consistent discipline. It's going to mean showing our children that God's authority exists and that your authority over them comes from him and that his authority must be obeyed. It's going to mean showing them by how you speak and how you act that you are just as much under God's authority and God's word as they are and as you expect them to be. It's going to mean deliberately setting aside time to teach your children God's word and not just assuming that the Sundays you can make it and whatever other stuff you can fit in is going to cut it. And here's why I say all this, because the world and its doctrine of pluralistic, humanistic individualism is going to do everything it can to catechize or indoctrinate your children in their truth. And so the question for us then is, how are we going to show our children the truth about Jesus? Friends, we all have to do something with the claims of Jesus. We can't remain neutral toward it. Our children will not be able to remain neutral toward it. And if any of us are neutral toward it, we may wind up becoming guilty of a sin that can never be forgiven. And that is the fourth 
thing Jesus does with his words. In verses 31 and 32, he denounces their hard-hearted sin. This is the heart of the problem, the center of these verses, and the crux of the great issue of the unpardonable sin, as it's commonly known. There are a lot of books, articles, sermons, and debates devoted to this. Many of them good, obviously probably many of them bad as well. There are certain sins that we may think of, or I should say perhaps treat as being pardonable, unpardonable, or nearly unpardonable, such as the great and heinous sin of being late. Amen, Dad? That's how my dad raised me. In fact, I'm very sad that Troy Cantrell isn't here this morning because we were joking about that last week. In all seriousness, though, there are people who believe that murder, adultery, denying Christ under persecution are unpardonable sins, but I don't think this passage points to either of those at all. In fact, Jesus says every other sin will be forgiven. So murder and adultery and even shame towards Christ can be forgiven. Others debate whether or not the Pharisees here had committed it or if they were being warned about it because they were getting really close to it. And others debate a lot about what exactly Jesus means by this because this is a really big deal. Jesus, who had demonstrated his divine authority, who had affirmed it verbally, who has called people to repent or perish, is also saying that there is a sin, two times you see this phrase, that will not be forgiven. And I think the right response to that is yikes. And I want to try to put it to you pretty simply, kind of a bottom line kind of guy. I don't believe, first of all, that Jesus said these words with a kind of chuckle to himself, mischievously looking forward to Christians wrestling with this for thousands of years to come. No, he's purposefully, he's not interested in troubling or confusing us. He says these things purposefully with a direct connection to what had happened just before he started speaking. With the fact that the Pharisees were, I believe, teetering on the edge of committing this sin that Jesus says brings you past the point of no return. As I said, books, articles, sermons, debates, there are further questions and analysis to be done than I can cover in one sermon or even one part of one sermon. But, I th- but what I think is clear here is that what Jesus is denouncing is the sin of hard-hearted rejection, hard-hearted and persistent rejection of the Spirit's work through Jesus and blasphemously attributing it to the work of the devil. That's what the unpardonable sin is and what Jesus means. It is at the very least what the Pharisees were close to, what their words revealed they were headed for. They were at least teetering over the edge of looking at the undeniable evidence that Jesus Christ is Lord as revealed by the Holy Spirit and deliberately, knowingly, and willfully denying it anyway. It's, Jesus says, blasphemy against the Spirit. It's speaking against the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus denounces here. Look just a few verses previous for why Jesus brings this up in response to the Pharisees' slander. He says in verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. That's in response to them accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. So what they had done was equate the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, a miraculous act empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, to the devil. And that was blasphemous. You're probably familiar with this word blasphemous. It's certainly still a word you can hear in our in our zeitgeist. It essentially means, even with a non-religious connotation, to damage one's reputation. 
our English word has two Greek words in its meaning, blapto and feme, blapto feme, blasphemy. Harm is blapto and, re and uh, reputation is feme. And so the Pharisees were blaspheming. They were damaging the reputation of God the Holy Spirit by attributing his work to Satan. But there's a, there's a really important key here as well. It is something that was done hard-heartedly and persistently. All the evidence is pointing to it being a God-empowered work, this demonic or this exorcism of a demon. But because they didn't want it to be, they refused to believe it. And so the unpardonable sin, the sin that will not be forgiven, is a hard-hearted persistence in rejecting the glory of God revealed by the Holy Spirit and even regarding it as evil. A hard-hearted rejection of the Spirit's work through Jesus and blasphemously attributing it to the work of Satan. A hardness of heart that will not be softened, that rejects the divine glory and goodness of God displayed in Jesus by the power of the Spirit and regarding it as evil, having a hateful resistance toward it. No matter the evidence, even the evidence of a dead man being raised on the third day later on, those who commit this unpardonable sin will not believe. As I researched this, I, I learned a couple of terms that I've never heard before. You can actually observe this kind of resistance, unbelief in other spheres of life. There's this concept called belief perseverance or conceptual conservatism, which essentially means maintaining a belief despite incontrovertible evidence that contradicts it. For example, all the research that we have now about how smoking can kill you, but stubbornly not believing, nah, 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 it's not going to hurt me. It's kind of like that. And what winds up happening is what Romans 1 tells us which is that this persistent rejection and unbelief leads to God giving them over to their hard-hearted rejection of him and even embracing their sin regarding God as evil. God's the problem. My sin is what's good. Turn just a few pages further in your New Testament to Romans chapter 1, and let's just let this passage speak for itself. Romans 1, 19 through 32. What a harrowing word this is. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things therefore god gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women changed natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless, shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since... They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, ma covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I think that's what happens when a hard heart that refuses to be softened rejects what is revealed to them, the divine glory and goodness of God displayed through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the revealing work of the Holy Spirit and instead considers it all evil. Jesus says that damaging His reputation can be forgiven through repentance and faith like every other sin, but that blaspheming the Holy Spirit by rejecting the incontrovertible evidence that the Holy Spirit makes clear about Jesus and regarding it as evil ultimately cannot be forgiven because, excuse me, lost my place in my notes. It's an important one. Don't want to miss my place in my notes. It cannot be forgiven because the sin that will not be forgiven cannot be repented of. You won't be able to repent of it. Be, therefore, it is an unforgivable sin because forgiveness is promised to all who genuinely repent of sin. So, obviously, one of the questions that comes in our minds is can I or perhaps have I committed this sin? And I think it's a very clear answer. If you are someone who has trusted and is trusting in Jesus, then no way. No way can you commit this sin. And think about this, too. I talked to the teens about this a little bit this morning. If you're worried about committing it, then you can't have committed it. Because at the heart of the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin is a willful, hard-hearted rejection of and attributing what is good in terms of the Holy Spirit's work to reveal Christ to us as evil. And if you're hard-heartedly rejecting the revelation of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, then you don't care about whether or not you've committed some so-called sin. And therefore, you'll be beyond repentance. Now, at the same time, is it possible that there could be someone listening to this, whether here, live, or on a recording later, who could be in danger of willfully and knowingly rejecting that which they have known about, heard about, and seen their whole lives through the work of the Holy Spirit and still refusing it? I would say so. I would say that's very much a danger for someone who has heard and known the truth and willfully rejects it and regards it as evil. So consider this a warning. If you are someone who is playing games with the faith, if you are someone who's sort of okay with what Christianity is about, but you're not really all in, and if therefore you are perhaps heading toward a full-on rejection of the truth, even though you know better, be warned. Now speaking of warnings, how Jesus ends these words in verses 33 through 37 are, as you probably have already thought, worthy of a whole sermon. The third thing that Jesus says here is he speaks about the speech that condemns forever. But I think we have to understand it in this context of the event that happens, which is why I want to do it right here at the end. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. You see, friends, the Pharisees had used words to blaspheme Jesus. And those words came from their hearts. And this passage is certainly applicable to so many other situations that we would find ourselves in. And I'm already thinking about perhaps coming back to this passage sometime later. 
But the immediate context, as I said, is of these Pharisees' blasphemous words. And Jesus is warning regarding that kind of blasphemy. These words that can be uttered that will condemn you forever. Jesus speaks in verse 36 of careless words, which is part of why I wonder if the fact that the Pharisees had more so uttered a careless and rash denial of the crowd's supposition that Jesus was the Messiah, if you're suggesting demonic activity instead, was sort of a panicked retort, which then I believe perhaps led Jesus to calling their attention to how close that comes to the point of no return. Which then makes sense why Jesus would say that such words of blasphemy can condemn you, verse 37. And that, of course, words of faith-fueled affirmation and acceptance, in contrast, can justify you, beginning of verse 37. But ultimately, we know, as is always the case with Jesus, the heart matters most. And in verse 34... Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The speech that your mouth utters is coming from somewhere. And it comes from your heart. The fruit has roots. What you say has a source. And so Jesus' call in verse 33 to make the tree good is ultimately a call for a miraculous inward transformation from the roots to the fruit through the power of that Holy Spirit that Jesus warns against blaspheming. So, in general, watch what you say, but especially when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing and glorifying Jesus, because it turns out your words can literally condemn you. In many ways, but in no greater way than if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit and his work. Well, I find it interesting that just a few verses previous to this, we're told that Jesus is gentle and gracious. And then here we have him calling the Pharisees names, calling them a den of snakes. Friends, make no mistake, Jesus is gracious, gentle, patient, loving, compassionate, humble, and meek, and he is also very direct with those whose words and actions display willful and hard-hearted rejection. Friends, he is a gracious Savior, but he is the King, and he demands allegiance. Friends, I wouldn't want anyone within the sound of my voice who is truly desirous of following Jesus to come away from this passage with any fear that they may have committed the unpardonable sin and there's no hope for them. And you're now stuck and you can't ever be saved. Christian friend, I believe the the Bible is teaching that if you love and want to follow him, even if you're messing it up left and right, you love and want to follow him, you can be safe in him. But I also wouldn't want anyone within the sound of my voice that is playing games with their Christianity, stubbornly resisting the message and work of the Holy Spirit, heading down a path that may end in a hard-hearted, willful rejection of the truth and calling it evil to have a false assurance. Because if you are heading towards regarding the Holy Spirit's work of revealing the glory and grace of Christ to you as an evil thing. Hear me, beware, and repent before you're past the point of no return. So may God draw unbelievers to faith. May he use his people to seek to reach unbelievers with the good news. And may he use his word in all of our hearts as we seek to follow him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are hard words and I am not enough to have explained them perfectly we are in need of your Holy Spirit as we sang a few minutes ago 
for you, Spirit, to lift our eyes to Jesus and to understand what his word says. And so as we go from here with this harrowing warning, I pray that there would be none who are or remain hard-hearted, willfully, knowingly, even perhaps angrily rejecting and resisting and even hating the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal the goodness and grace of Jesus. For all of us who are believers, I pray that there would be none who leaves this room afraid of having done something long ago that means that they're not really believers now. Help all of us who are truly yours to be assured of our possession of you and being possessed by you. And may this even move us to go and share the good news with those who need to hear it before it becomes too late for them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's take a few minutes and pray quietly in our hearts in response to God's word.